of chapter 4. He says this. Sorry, it's verse 20. So far he's been kind of rough with the Galatians. Have you ever written an email or a letter to someone? And before they had emojis. Emojis are a big thing now, so you can do the emoji. You know, I always put a smiley after everything because I assume everyone thinks I'm always angry at them when I say anything because that's what I assume when someone texts me something that's real straight into the point. So I'm always like smiley face after everything because I'm like, I'm not angry. Like, this isn't sarcasm. You know, my wife can't even tell if I'm being sarcastic or not face to face. Words are a completely different thing when you're texting or emailing. And so Paul's writing a letter. He's got this same issue. It's not because he's texting. He's writing down a letter and he's sending it to this church. He knows there's all kinds of problems going on because there's this group of people that are legalistic. They're Judaizers. They say Jesus is good for salvation, but you also need to do this list of things because if you don't, you're really not saved. And so that's a problem, right? Because Jesus, when he died on the cross, he said it is finished. The work is done. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, Paul writes, Salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone would start to brag about it. And so Paul writes here, and he is very heavy-handed with them because he's trying to shake them out of their stupor. He asks them, he says, Who's fascinated you so much with this system of works that you've turned away from the true gospel that says that Jesus saves you, that it's his grace alone, that it's trusting in him that saves, not anything you can do to add to it. So you've been fascinated by them. You need to be woken up because you're in a danger zone. Paul's saying you better check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? And so he says... In verse 20 of Galatians chapter 4, I would like to be present with you now. I'd like to speak to you face to face. He says, and to change my tone. I don't want to be harsh with you, but if you've ever written a letter to someone, you can't necessarily convey your emotions through words. And so sometimes you'll use words that are sharper than you really want to use just so you get your point across. Now, hopefully you don't do that. In our day and age, drive to them. Go see them face-to-face, have a conversation. It's going to be hurtful, it's going to be hard, but there won't be any misconceptions. There will be, you know, and, and relationships are hard, okay? We all know that. But when you're doing all that you can to be as straightforward as you can, whether the person receives it or not, it doesn't matter. But if you will just try to do your best, if they don't receive it, that's on them, you know? It really is. Because you can only do what you can do. But Paul here is saying, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone because I'm, I, I don't know what else to do. He says, I have doubts about you. I have doubts about whether or not you've truly received the gospel now that you've been pulled aside to this other system of religious works to earn God's favor. And so Paul says, I'm being sharp with you because I really don't know what else to do. I'm hundreds of miles away. And I can't come to you, so this is the next best thing. So then, in verse 21, he continues. And this is this week's passage. Uh, I, I said 21, I said 19. He says, My little children, verse 19, for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you. 
So Paul looks at this church as something that it's a labor of love, but he compares it to a woman giving birth to her children. There's travail, there's hard work, there's ridiculous amounts of pain that's gone through in order to produce and to, to bring this child into the world, right? And Paul's saying, I went through travail in order to present the gospel to you, to plant a church, and to see you flourish. And now these men have come in behind me, and they've basically started feeding you poison. How many moms in here, if you had children, you protect them, sometimes to the nth degree, to the point where, you know, but you do everything you can to keep them alive, they are fully dependent upon you. If you left them with a babysitter who would do something that could harm them, you'd take it personal. There would be a throwdown. There would be some problems involved. That's what Paul's saying. He's personally involved. He says, I care deeply about your walk with Jesus, and it hurts me deeply. There's going to be a throwdown. If I need to come to you, I will. But at this point, I can't. So here's this letter. So in verse 21, he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, you who have been fascinated and you're following these that came after me, he says, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Do you don't know what it, you don't, you don't know what it teaches, do you? He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons. So he's going to give this Old Testament history that they would know. Or if they're Gentiles, he's going to inform them about this Old Testament history about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. It is one of those when you read the Old Testament, I don't know about you guys, but I look at the people God chose and I'm like, these are more jacked up families than I know personally. You know, it, it, there's so many problems. If you read Genesis and you don't start going, Jerry, Jerry, and some of the families, I don't think you're seeing it. Because here we have Abraham, a man of faith. God has called him out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. He called him out of an idol-worshiping family. And then he and his wife leave. So he gives this, uh, if you'll hit the next slide, Jesse, he gives this, uh, that's not this slide, there it is, thank you, historical facts. He's going to tell this historical story that happened, and he's going to draw some application from this story about Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. Now, Abraham was married to Sarah, they didn't have any children. And then they gave birth to Isaac, the son of promise, when they were, the New Testament says, practically dead. They were very old is what it means. And so I'm going to go through the history of this particular story after we read verse 19 through 23. And then we'll, from there we'll be able to draw some uh, application. So in verse 19, he's, or excuse me, it says 19, but 21 he says, tell me you who desire to be under the law. Do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh and he of the free woman through promise. So we'll stop there. So these are the historical facts. This is something that happened. Perhaps the easiest way to grasp a historical account is to trace briefly through Abraham's walk of faith. And so we're going to go based on his age. Now, many people don't know this, but when God called Abraham, do you know how old he was? 
He was 75. Now, in our culture, we go, 75, you're not even useful anymore. You can go just stay in a retirement home. <laughs> That's ridiculous, because until you breathe your last breath, you have potential. It's God-given potential. So, he's 75 years old. Abraham's called by God to go to Canaan. And God promises him many descendants. He said, I'm going to give you many descendants. 75, he's got no children. Now, just draw the conclusion from our own culture. What would you say at 75 if somebody said, yeah, we're kind of thinking about having kids? You'd look at everybody and go, You're, they're nuts. Like, why? Why? I'm 30-something years old, and I look at it, and I'm, we had our second, and I'm like, two doesn't seem so bad. Maybe that's enough. That's plenty. You know, that's, that's a lot to be. And so God promises him many descendants. Both Abraham and his wife Sarah wanted children, but Sarah was barren. She didn't have any children. God was waiting until both of them were, as the New Testament says, as good as dead. Even the Bible calls them basically as good as dead before he would perform the miracle of sending them a son. You see, if they had one when they were of age, where it made sense for people to have kids, everybody would say, well, yeah, of course they did. They're, they're two healthy young individuals. But if they're 75 years old and God promises and then waits another 25 years until they have him, that's God. That's the child of promise. It's not of works, it's by faith. And so, turn the page 10 years. Promised son has not yet arrived and Sarah becomes impatient. Imagine that. Ten years, I'd have been impatient three months in. That's how short my attention span is. But ten years, she becomes impatient. She suggests that Abraham marry Hagar, her maid. This is the slave that she brought with her when she left Egypt. So another reason that Abraham going to Egypt was kind of a mistake anyway. But then she comes out with this not blessing. She comes out with this servant that ends up being a snare. And so Hagar, her maid, uh, her maid, is offered to Abraham to have a child. Now, this act is totally legal in their society. It's something that's normal. You can't have children. You give your husband another woman. When she gets pregnant, she gives birth to the child while sitting on the wife's knees. Therefore, it's Sarah's kid, right? We, they're trying to help God out. I've never done that, have you? Okay, so it's just me. So he basically, uh, of course, has to be forced to do this. He's like, all right. You know, I mean, it's, he's a typical guy. He knows what God's promised. He's been praying about this. He thought, you know, maybe God wants to do it this way. This is of the Lord. I mean, why else would my wife offer me another woman? That's an act of God. Well, except the fact that it's against his character to the whole adultery thing, you know. And, and, and so, you know, in his stupor, a little bit immature in faith, he compromises. Compromise always leads to problems. It just does. And so Abraham followed her suggestion and married Hagar. Now, here's the deal. Husbands, lead your families. It's God's design. It's his purpose. The deal is, that if we don't lead our families and we kind of fall asleep at the wheel, our wives will take over because they're not going to let things just go undone. And it's their desire to take our position. It's just part of the curse. 
Not necessarily because they're trying to usurp you. They just go, hey, there's something not getting done and I'm going to do it. But here's the deal. If we don't lead our families, our wives will. And what God's word says is that's going to cause problems because it's not his original design. It didn't go right for Adam and it didn't go right for Abraham. Now, that's nothing against ladies. That's just, it's a spiritual principle. And so God informs us about that and we also see it in many of the stories take place. So, the Lord intervenes. So Hagar gets pregnant, and guess what? There's this child born into their house. Sarah's not been able to have children for years and years and years and years and years. Their whole marriage gives Hagar to Abraham basically overnight. Here's a baby. You can imagine the problems that this is going to cause because all of a sudden, it's me. She's going, oh my gosh, I'm the problem. And now she's able to have kids with my husband and all these things. And there's jealousy and there's all kinds of problems in the house. And so Sarah gets jealous and things are so difficult in the home that Sarah throws Hagar out. But the Lord intervenes. He sends Hagar back, promises to take care of her and her son. And when Abraham is 86, the the son is born and he calls him Ishmael. That's in Genesis 16. So Abraham gets to be about 99 years old, and God speaks to Abraham and promises again that he will have a son by Sarah. Well, you can imagine Abraham going, but God, you already gave me a son. And basically, God says to Abraham, that's not your son. I'm going to give you a son. The son of promise will be through your wife, Sarah. And so um, Sarah and Abraham get told this. Later, God appears again and reaffirms the promise to Sarah as well. And she laughs. And the word Isaac means laughter. And so they named the child Isaac. So flash forward, of course, nine, ten months. The son is born, Genesis 21. They name him Isaac, which means laughter, as commanded by God. But the arrival of Isaac creates a new problem in the home. All of a sudden, the firstborn, Ishmael, the heir to all that Abraham has and the promises in their mind, he's got a rival. What happens in kingdoms where someone else comes along that's the firstborn and all the other ones below him don't like him? They try to find a way to kill him. And so there's problems. For 14 years, Ishmael has been his father's only son, very dear to his heart. How will Ishmael respond to the presence of a rival? Well, we find out that he's a wild man, that he's strong, that he's a a manly man. So Abraham turns 103 years old or so. And it's customary for the Jews to wean their children at about the age of three. And to make a great occasion of it, at the feast, Ishmael starts to mock Isaac. He makes fun of him. Of course, Sarah sees this. She's not too happy about it. Like if you saw your kid getting made fun of at a baseball game and mom's standing there and she's like, you know, naturally. And uh, to create trouble in the home. So there's only one solution to the problem, a costly one. Hagar and her son have to go. They got to go. So with a broken heart, Abraham sends his son away. Now this is his son. It's not Sarah's son, but it is his son. And so because this is what the Lord tells him to do, Sarah says, we got to get, get this guy out of here. He's going to hurt my son. He's going to do something to him. And, uh, and Abraham's like, well, I, he's caught between the rock and a hard place that he's created by trying to help God out. And so Because of that, he sends his son away, and God confirms that that was of the Lord. That was something he was supposed to do. 
to do. So Paul's going to draw some information from this. But what I want to talk about for just a second, Jesse, if you'll give me the next slide. This is what we call an allegory. An allegory is a story, a poem, or a picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning. Now, we need to be careful because many people, many Christians, see things like this and they think that it gives them license to draw allegory or dual meanings or hidden things from all of Scripture. That is not the case. In the case of the New Testament and the Old Testament, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. It's all about Jesus, but we don't know that until Jesus comes on the scene and explains all those things, sends the Holy Spirit, gives the apostles and those who have the authority to write Scripture, inspires them to interpret what was going on in the Old Testament. So when the New Testament it came, it's the, New, it's the Old Testament revealed. It, it brings out everything that was about Christ. So in the New Testament, if it draws allegory from an Old Testament story, then we got license. Hey, the New Testament says that this was about this, even though it was a practical, everyday thing that happened. But we can't just do that with every passage because then you can make any passage mean anything. There's rules of interpretation. And so he gives us these historical facts and then he gives us allegory from those facts. So, in this story, what we find out is that Hagar versus Sarah is like the law versus grace. So that makes sense why it'd be in the book of Galatians. And then Ishmael, the fruit that came from Hagar, is like the flesh. The flesh always wars against the spirit. God wants to do a work in you. He wants to work through the spirit. But we can quench the Spirit by walking in the flesh, and we'll get into that. So Isaac is a type of the Spirit. He's a son inherited according to the promise, not by the works of man. So if you hit the next slide, we'll go to verse 24 through 29. These things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants. Covenant is a promise. It's an agreement between two parties. We already talked about in Galatians that the promise that God made to Abraham was not a promise that was made between two people. It was a promise made by one, God. And God keeps his promises. We actually sing a song with Lucy. God keeps his promises. Yes, he does. God keeps his promises. Yes, he does. You know, we get all excited about it. So these are the two promises, the two agreements, the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. We've talked about that, how the law brings us into bondage, keeps us within the fence of our yard until Christ came and set us free by fulfilling the law. But it was to keep us in line. Verse 25, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. So she symbolizes the law and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Think about it. Hagar was a slave. She was a servant. She was a maidservant. She didn't get paid. She got her needs taken care of, but she was a slave that came out of Egypt with them and became their hand, their maidservant. And so in the same way, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, For the desolate has many more children 
than she who has a husband. So there's many things that are drawn out of that, but that's a quote from Isaiah. He says, rejoice, you who are barren. And this is speaking of what happened in Genesis, where this barren woman, Sarah, can rejoice, even though she was not bearing. It says, break forth and shout. This is the idea of worshiping, giving thanks, you who are not in labor. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not yet seen. Faith is not blind like many would have you think. Faith is trusting that what God says will come to pass later. It's trusting that God's promises will be fulfilled. It's not trusting in something that we will never see. There's a distinction there. And so in the same way, Sarah had to practice faith by trusting that what God had told Abraham and her would be fulfilled, but they just had to wait upon him and not try to help him out. And so we have this, verse 28 says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. He says, Now we, talking to the Galatians, just as Isaac was, are now children of the promise. In you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so Abraham was a man of faith. Those who came from him were of faith. And God says that those are children of Abraham who are continually of faith, not of some system. Verse 29, But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not err with the son of the free woman. There can only be one heir. And so in this allegory, we have lots of stuff going on, but I, I went ahead and made a slide, and it, the words got smaller than I thought they would, so I'll just uh, make sure to go through it in case you can't see it. But Abraham was of faith. He, he's a symbol in the Old Testament of faith. Sarah was a symbol of grace. Now, she had to have lots of grace on her husband that took another wife, but to be fair, she offered the other wife. Um, but that being said, Isaac was born by grace, Sarah, through faith, Abraham. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Salvation, in the same way as Isaac's birth, is a faith uh, by grace through faith, not of works. So you can see the connection there between Ephesians and Galatians and Genesis. That there's the, this correlation that Paul is drawing Isaac actually illustrates the life of a Christian believer, and here's how he does. He was born by God's power. We already talked about that. He wasn't born to a family that was young and spry and, and ready to have kids. He was born to somebody that was 99 years old, or, or, or at least close to that age. 75 is old enough. 99 is impossible. All things are possible with God. So he was born by God's power. In the same way, the believer is not born according to the flesh. He's boarding, born according to the Spirit. John chapter 3, verse 3, Unless a man is born again, he shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He won't be an heir. Same with Ishmael. So, also, he brought joy to all who heard the news. When Sarah found out that God had promised them a child, she laughed. I wonder how many years it had been since Sarah had laughed. Have you ever met someone who can't have children? 
You can say anything to them, and they're just weeping. They're hurting. They, they feel like they're not fulfilling their, you know, their role if they want to have children. And so there was joy brought to the household of Abraham. In the same way, when we are saved by grace through faith, there's this great celebration of joy. Scripture tells us that in heaven, the angels rejoice over one person receiving Christ as their salvation. They just, there's a party. And in the same way, there should be for us. When we know someone that gets saved, we were sharing Kay Vandiver's story yesterday at the memorial. And over and over again, people were like, Kay got saved and she called all of us. She was so excited. There was, there was practically dancing in the streets. It was just in everyone's houses. Everybody who had been praying for her for 12 years. So salvation is something that brings great joy to all who hear the news and know what it means. Um, Isaac grew and was weaned. He was born, that's good, but then he was weaned. That means he matured. They, they got him off the bottle. They, they brought him to a place where he could eat solid food, and he grew. That's a sign of a healthy believer as well. Many people look to salvation as the only thing. They're like, hey, you just got to get them saved. And, and that's true. We, we do want to see people born again, but they need to be discipled. They need to be brought to maturity. Paul says, I'm, I'm laboring again until the fullness of Christ is revealed in you, that you would continue to mature, that birth wouldn't be it. If birth is it, that's called stillborn. That's never good news in physical life or in spiritual life. Also, Isaac was persecuted by Ishmael. Ishmael's a picture of the flesh. When we're born again, the, we still have this fleshly nature, and it wars against the spirit. And so Isaac and Ishmael are always kind of fighting one another. So what do we do to deal with that? We'll talk about that in a minute. Verse 30. <clears throat> oh, sorry. Hagar. No, you're right. Hagar is also involved in this. So she illustrates life under the law. Now, remember, in the context of this passage, they're all excited about living under the law. They're like, hey, we're going to go back to living under the law so that we can be righteous by God's standard. Well, here's what the law does. Hagar illustrates life under the law. Hagar was a slave. The, the law was never meant to set anyone free. The law was meant to keep us until grace came. The law was meant to keep us in line, to keep us from transgressing against God. Even in the temple where they would make sacrifices, they would spill the blood of an animal and cover the altar with it. It was temporary. Because when that altar was covered, there was a physical altar. They would pour the blood on there to cover the sins until the time that the sins could be washed away by Jesus. The blood of bulls and goats could never save it could only cover for a short period of time. So <clears throat> Hagar was a slave in the same way. Anyone who tries to live under the law will be a slave to the law. Hagar was not meant to bear a child. Galatians 3.21, we just read it within the last couple of weeks. The law cannot give life. It was never meant to. It was only meant to tutor us until the point where we could understand that we couldn't do it on our own and bring us to the point where we saw, hey, I need a savior. Hagar gave birth to a slave. Slaves can only give birth to slaves. If you're going to live under the law, you will be a slave to the law. And you'll only give birth. Anybody who starts to follow your way of life 
will be caught under the law. The Judaizers were giving birth to other slaves. They were slaves to the law. They were never set free. They were never given new life. They were never freed up to follow God, no longer because they had to, but because they, they wanted to. Hagar was cast out by God's instruction. So, if we have this war that goes on in the flesh. Turn back with me to the left in your Bibles. Right after the book of Acts, the book of Romans. If you go to 1st or 2nd Corinthians, you're too far to the right. Go to the left to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, verse 13. Talking about the law, Paul writes this. Has then what is good become death to me? Talking about the law. Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So the law was like a mirror that shows you the blemishes on your face. And the, the, because the mirror is there, it reveals how sinful you actually are. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. I'm sold under sin. I have a sinful nature. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, what I want to do, he says, that I do not practice. I know what's right, and yet I don't do it. Excuse me. But what I hate... That is what I do. So I know what's right, but I still do it, and I hate it, but I continue to do it, he says. If then I do what I don't want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but it's that sinful nature that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. When he talks about the flesh, he's talking about our natural Man, our natural desires, our, our flesh, our bodies, they just, they, they want to sin. They want to eat too much food. They want to drink too much. Like our bodies just desire to do what is wrong naturally. For to will, to want to do it, is present within me, Paul says. But how to perform what is good, I don't find within me. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but the, the, the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not, what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who does it, but it's sin that still dwells in me. So what he's saying is that I have to be delivered. I have to put to death this fleshly nature that is in me. And it's in us. As believers, we still have a, a fleshly nature, and so the war, the war is between the flesh and the spirit, and the spirit wants to give us life, and the flesh is always dragging us down to death. So how do we deal with this? Is it by following a system? Man, I really screwed up at this this week. I guess I'll just make a couple of rules, and then I'll follow those, and then I won't do it anymore. But the more rules you got to follow, the more you, you mess up. That's how it is in my work. We've got this thing, and uh, I won't get too much into it because it's, it's kind of a soapbox of mine, but we have this system that says, okay, we've got these certain instructions that we have to follow in all that we do. And so if we ever mess up, and someone from a different apartment, department or a different um, company 
we send them a, a faulty part or something, it comes back as what they call a corrective action. So they want us to find out what the root cause was for the problem that we produced. And usually what that will come down to is, in my opinion, human error. We just didn't follow the rules. But many times we have to come up with a way to change the rules so that we won't screw up anymore. You can see where there's a problem in that because you can change the rules, but if the person that wasn't following the rules in the first place and then you add a rule, what happens? Transgression is what the Bible calls it. You jack up. You, you mess up. You, you don't do what's right and you produce another faulty part. Well, that's impossible. We change the rules so that would never happen again. But here's the deal. People make mistakes. Sometimes because they decide to and sometimes unknowingly. They just they mess up. And so what do we do about that? How do we deal with this sinful nature? How do we deal with this desire to sin when we know it's wrong? And, and the, so what I came up with and what the Bible says, if we cast out the bondwoman, we cast out that fleshly nature. We don't deal with it according to the law anymore. What the Bible says is that it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. I don't have any rights anymore. Christ is my all in all. I live to do all that pleases the Father. That's what Jesus said. And if his, this, the same man who said that, if his spirit dwells within us, then it, and if it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me, I live to do what pleases the Father, not what pleases me. And in the same way, question everything you do. Am I doing this because it pleases me and my fleshly desires? Or am I doing this because it pleases God? Because Jesus paid it all for my sins. I'm a child of God. I inherit everything that Jesus inherits. I'm a debtor no longer to the law to fulfill it. He fulfilled it for me. Now I'm a debtor to follow God and everything, to be his slave. No longer a slave to sin. Sin will make you a slave. Trust me, sin will make you its slave. If you don't serve Christ, you will serve sin. You'll serve man's opinion. You'll serve all kinds of other things, addiction, whatever it might be. You'll serve something. You may think I'm a servant to no one, but if you serve, it, you, you naturally will serve something, someone. And, uh, you know, I, I've struggled with that for years, and God even through this study, is trying to deliver me, saying, you don't, you don't have to care what people think of you anymore. You're living for me. You're mine. You're, you're walking with my son. If you will do what he does, you know what I said about him? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. That's what, that's what the father said to Peter. They went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus takes these men with them, Peter, James, and John, they go up there on the mountain. They have no idea what they're getting ready to walk into. And if, if you were walking with Jesus, you would never know what you're getting ready to walk into. I just, who knows? He's going to heal somebody. They're going to stand up and walk. Uh, they're going to talk even though they were mute their whole life. They're going to see even though they were blind. Lepers were cleansed. Like there was a thing in the law that said if a leper's cleansed, here's the offering to make. But nobody ever saw that because lepers were never cleansed. Jesus walked up and said, be clean. And they were. So he takes them up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus doesn't say anything. He just goes, 
Father, glorify your son. I guess that is saying something. And he's, he's glorified. They get this vision of Jesus. He's lifted up, and there's all this light. And then Elijah's there, and Moses, the law and the prophets. And Peter's just looking at this, and of course he has to talk because he's like me. And he says, we need to build some tabernacle. Let's just hang out here. Let's build some little huts, and we'll just stay here. Let's not go back down there. There's problems down there. And, and I forgot what the point was in that story. Sorry, I got all worked up. My point is, is that when it comes to following Jesus, things change, and God does things that we don't see him doing. Um, and uh, Oh, yeah, thank you. See? Another blessing to me because Kelly's out here. Yeah. Peter speaks and then God reprimands him. He says, don't talk, Peter. This is my son. He's the one in whom I'm well pleased. And then he says this, hear him. Listen to him. Hear what he has to say. So God says through this passage, cast out the flesh. Cast out the bondwoman. Cast out the, works, uh, cast out the works of the law. Ishmael lived in the home for 17 years, but he was never meant to stay permanent. Just like the law was never meant to be a permanent solution for sin. So, application, verse 30. Verse 30. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. It's impossible to mix the law and grace. So how do we deal with the law and the old nature? The law will always try to bring us back into bondage, even though we've been set free. So we can try to deal with the flesh by trying to change the flesh. But that which is born of the flesh is flesh. John chapter 3, verse 6. You can't change a leopard's spots. You can't change who people are, but God can. Can we make a compromise with them? Well, that doesn't seem to have gone well when, when Abraham made a, hot, a compromise with Hagar. Galatians chapter 4, verse 9 actually has already said, After you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly element, elements to which you desire again to become in bondage? So that won't help. So the only solution is to cast them out. Now, this may seem harsh. Think about it from Abraham's perspective. Going back to Genesis, if you've had a son, and you've got two sons, you've got two wives, and you're worried about how this is all going to work out, what do you do? How do you cast out your child? Say, get out of my house. Like, it would break you. Abraham loved his son. He had him for 14 years. Spent a lot of time investing in him. How about us? We've invested a lot in our fleshly lives before Christ. There's a lot of things, there's a lot of effort we put into crafting how well we are at certain things that God wants to say, get rid of that thing. You know, there was a lot of the law, there was a lot of things that I had to cast out friendships, stuff, <clears throat> things that were a snare to me, things that would stumble me and take me back into bondage. But the beauty of it was when I was finally willing to do like Abraham and cast him out, 
There was joy and peace in the household. God still takes care of Ishmael, by the way. God was still taking care of him. God was still taking care of Hagar. As a matter of fact, to this day, Hagar and Ishmael are doing well. Look at it. We got this nation that rose up, descendants of Abraham. God said, your, send, your descendants I will bless. And he told him again, Ishmael, I'm going to bless him. I'm going to provide for him. And he's become a great nation. Look at all the oil in the Middle East. Look at all the provisions. But still a wild man, a man of war, a man of killing and murder. Many believe that Ishmael, basically, his descendants are Muslims today. And we have this problem between the Muslims and the Israelites, right? They, they kind of don't like each other. I don't know if anybody noticed that. Everybody wants peace in the Middle East. I don't think that's going to happen until Jesus comes back. He's going to take care of things. Because you can't kill family rivalry. <laughs> you can't. But God can. He can deal with those things. He can make things right. And so let me ask you this morning. Perhaps you've got a war going on within you. Not talking about without. Talking about the war within. And uh, you try to deal with it through uh, means that cannot be dealt with. Means that won't fix it. Let me encourage you, turn to Ephesians. Galatians, and then turn to the right to Ephesians. Ephesians. Sorry, chapter 6. Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he says this. Finally, my brethren... Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The battles that you fight are not against people, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's a spiritual battle going on in the background. Therefore, this is how you deal with it. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, in other words, in having prepared, stand therefore, having done these things. Gird your waist with the truth. Know the truth. Jesus said you will know the truth, and the truth is what's going to set you free. Then he says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. These Judaizers coming in and telling them that they need to add works to their faith, that they, in order to be saved, that's a fiery dart. That's Satan going, hey, Jesus isn't enough. No one would say that but Satan. So there's fiery darts that will come at you as a believer. And then he says, take the helmet of salvation. Put on your helmet. Because when you stick your head out of the trench, there's going to be pot shots fired at you because you want to follow Jesus. Put on your helmet. You don't have to worry about those pot shots. He says, put on the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Do not leave your homes without your sword. 
Life is a battle, and you need to be able to fight with God's weapons. Don't walk out of the trench without an offensive weapon. The only offensive weapon we've been given is the sword of the Spirit. That's how Jesus dealt with the temptation in the wilderness. The Word of God. He knew it. He used it as his only weapon. And then he says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Be a person of prayer. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So he says also, pray for me, that I may be equipped to do the work that God's given me. So, that's how you deal with the flesh, with spiritual weapons, with spiritual armor. And then when you have done all to stand, you will stand and you will be overcomers. The flesh will not dominate you, the spirit will. The flesh and the spirit are like two dogs. The one you feed will win. If you feed your flesh all the time, don't be surprised when your flesh beats the spirit. And when you're feeding the spirit all the time, don't be surprised when you don't have problems with the flesh anymore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Paul and his great love for the Galatian church that caused him to step out of his comfort zone and to write a strong letter of correction. Father, each one of us, there are times where we need correction. Give us hearts that are willing to receive it from you and from others that you send. Father, protect us from the flesh. Help us to cast it out. Every time it raises up its ugly head, Lord, help us to cast out the flesh, not according to our own ability to do so, but according to yours. Father, we believe, help our unbelief, change us from glory to glory. We're yours, and so whatever you want to do with us is the best. And we recognize that, and we pray you to help us to let you transform us by the renewing of our minds. Help us to make good decisions, Lord. We need you so much, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.